This is Man Afraid of Everything. Have you ever had somebody come up to you and say, Hey, you're Jed Stoneham. You're the best. Me <laughs> In 2016, I was 34 years old, and I was afraid of doing stand-up comedy. Why am I afraid of doing stand-up? Same as you. It looks terrifying. A crowd is going to judge me. Judge my jokes, voice, appearance, expressions, and clothes. It's also pretty self-indulgent, arrogant, narcissistic. What if I bomb? What if I freeze? Drunk people can be loud and opinionated. What do I say to hecklers? I've never been good with comebacks. I tend to lay low and avoid confrontation. I shrink and disappear. I'm not great at thinking on my feet. Even after all of the improv classes, I can still be a little gullible. Sarcasm can fly over my head. What if I bomb? On top of that, everyone has a different sense of humor. Nothing is objectively funny. I could play one room and kill, and the next night I could be standing there in silence. Or worse, I get booed off stage. How do I even hold the microphone? How do I pace myself? How do I know when my time is up? What if I get nervous and someone yells at me and then I yell back at them, but then somebody else in the crowd gets offended and then the video's on Twitter and my life is ruined. I'm afraid of forgetting my jokes, feeling embarrassed, failing. I'm afraid I'm too old. Kids start doing stand-up at 17 and it can take 10 years to master something and to establish connections. Do I really want to be 44 years old playing tiny bars in strip malls? I'm always afraid. I could go on forever. But you can't just want something and expect to get it. You have to actually do something. I had to take a leap of faith. While I was taking improv level C at Second City, I was also taking stand-up 101. The thing that finally pushed me over the edge to sign up for a stand-up class was a discount for taking more than one class at a time. Also, I had been too afraid to try an open mic, so I figured a class would help, even though I knew doing a ton of open mics was probably better. At least our class was going to have a showcase at the end, on stage at Second City. Stand-up class felt different than improv. It didn't seem as collaborative. Everyone was focused on themselves, which totally makes sense. Our class was in the Blackout Cabaret Theater, a modest space that could fit about 70 people. Rows of chairs were separated by little tables. There was a stage for us to practice on with one lonely microphone in the center. A cable snaked its way down to a small amplifier sitting on stage. We went around the theater and introduced ourselves. I mentioned I did a show called Man Afraid of Everything. Our instructor, Chris, asked, Whoa, like spiders? Chris had been doing stand-up for years, and he had a theory. To do stand-up, we should learn how to feel comfortable improvising material based on a suggestion from a classmate. When it was my turn, I stepped up on stage and clumsily adjusted the microphone. I was very, very nervous. A classmate suggested Brexit. I didn't know what that was at the time, so... I started talking about places I've visited outside of the U.S., which led to me listing off places I've been to inside of the U.S., which led to me standing on stage listing off the names of states. 
it did not go well. Each week, we did a variation of these improvised monologues, piggybacking off of the topic from the person before us or using it as an inspiration for a new tangent. Our homework for each week was to write three minutes of material in a different style of comedy. Observational, one-liners, different personas. Our first major assignment was to write three minutes of observational comedy. Think Seinfeld. Isn't it weird how people... whatever? Did you ever notice... whatever? I tried to write new stuff for the class because I didn't want to cherry-pick old jokes from things I'd written since I was 15. My old jokes were also probably pretty terrible. I spent hours writing one awful bit about vegetables. It's not even a joke. That weekend, I tried to keep it together, but I kept freaking out about trying my first three minutes on Monday night. I recorded a voice memo. Excuse the mouth guard. I got a new class that I've been taking that I keep thinking about dropping out of because it scares me to death. And I love the podcast, but I just picked a few things that were incredibly scary for me that I thought would be really helpful. And they've just taken over the last few months and I just haven't been able to do any new episodes And I'm worried that nobody's even going to be listening anymore. And I just can't sleep. But the story really begins way back in the mid-1990s, when I was in middle school. I participated in a speech competition. My teacher found a stand-up routine for me to memorize. There were jokes like, Why do we drive on parkways and park on driveways? After more than 20 years, my memory of that routine was a little fuzzy. So I decided to track down my middle school teacher, Mr. Coots. Yeah, that's right, Coots. Could you tell me what you recall? Because you, you said that you, you recall one. I'm almost sure that you did it, but I could be mistaken. How crazy the English language is. You know, how you drive on the parkway and you park on the driveway. You know, one teacher taught, so you'd think the preacher would have prot, but that's not right. One moose, two meese. That is exactly what I'm calling about. Really? Really? Okay, yes. well, that's yes. memorable for you, too. I, I remember you, I, I kind of thought it to be like, where you were supposed to be kind of mad at me as a teacher, the whole idea of, you know, we're teaching you this stuff, but it makes no sense. And I remember I kind of gave you the the license to be upset with me when you gave this speech, like, come on, what's the deal? So I, it was just, I think it was just you, just speaking to the audience, speaking to the judges. I, I, I very much remember telling you to be mad at me, and then you're like, but I'm not really mad at you, but I, I, I told you it's okay to look like you're mad at me, because you're upset about this, the rules of English language just don't make sense. I say this because I I wanted to encourage other students to do that same piece. It was something out of a Reader's Digest. Yeah, I went here. I have no idea. Do you remember anything about my actual performance? Was I any good? Yeah. Yeah, I I remembered it. Yeah, I remember your um, facial expression, how you were, like, mad. You know, like, this this crazy English language, it makes no sense. You kind of gave this 
this kind of sigh, you know, like you're disgusted with the whole business. Like, what was my demeanor like when you had me in classes and stuff? I would say you were quiet. I, I remember you, I could always tell what you were thinking by looking at your face. You know, and one of your fellow students was doing something that, you know, you thought was kind of silly. And most kids, I think, probably just would have said a negative thing, but we're quiet about it. You, you didn't say it. Your head kind of goes up a little bit and the eyes move back a little bit. So it's interesting to hear that um, because I was the only one in, in eighth grade. And then yeah. when I get to high school, it's a class of like 500 kids. And I was like, was I quiet when I was in eighth grade? Because when I got to high school, like I was super quiet. When I was 15, I signed up for this thing called AOL and started an email newsletter for jokes. I barely talked to people in high school, but I messaged them nonstop on AOL Instant Messenger. By the end of high school, I had taught myself HTML just so I could post jokes on the internet. I called it Jed's Jokes and Other Stuff. I was quiet and shy in real life, but when I talked, I could make people laugh. I'd been writing jokes for almost 20 years. It was time to try telling some. In my last hours of dread, I rehearsed in the car on my way to class. When I got there, I sat in anxiety while everyone did their material. And then, it was my turn. <laughs> so, did you ever notice that nobody says the word vegetables anymore? It's always fruits and veggies. Try my fresh veggie trip. Is it that hard to say vegetable? Is it too long to say vegetable? Or does it just remind you of a veggie table? Like a veggie table at your dinner party, and it spoils and goes rotten, and then the veggie table just collapses, and all your vegetables are on the floor. I don't know. It's not a real thing. I read about it in Good Housekeeping uh, website. <laughs> Which I think good housekeeping should probably rebrand itself to be super good housekeeping because it's so damn informative. <laughs> Sorry guys. Sorry guys, I can't hang up. There's this super good article in Super Good Housekeeping about cutting veggies. <laughs> I hate getting cuts. It's, it's just that they're permanent. Like, there's this scar on my arm right now that I got 20 years ago because a guy bit me during basketball practice. And every day, I get... And then I start thinking about cuts, like paper cuts between your fingers. Or paper cuts in the webbing in between your toes of your feet. And the other day, I was shaving, and I looked at the razor, and I thought, what if I leave this it got worse from there. I was starting to gross myself out. I was supposed to make people laugh, not cringe. Observational comedy was not my thing. Just listening back to that tape makes me nervous. By the time I got to college, I was pitching comedy for academic credits. 
I arranged to do an independent study by making a multimedia CD-ROM about a comedy club in Peoria, Illinois. I hung out with performers in the green room at Brewster's Comedy Club. The comics reviewed note cards, fiddled with guitars, and gave advice about making it in L.A. I took pictures and video of their performances. It was weird to see how different comedians were in the green room versus on stage. Beforehand, they were subdued and calculating, but when they got on stage, they were huge, louder, loose. They bounced from story to story and played with the crowd. I couldn't imagine doing stand-up. I was far more comfortable writing about and documenting comedy. I also took a screenwriting class in college and wrote a script called Finding Humor about a kleptomaniac comedian who stole jokes. Clearly, I was obsessed with comedy, but I was too afraid to try it myself. I hid behind words and pictures and Photoshop, keeping everything at a distance, which also made it hard to make friends. On most weekends, instead of going to parties on campus, I'd drive home to see my girlfriend. During the two-and-a-half-hour drive through the endless cornfields of Illinois, I'd talk complete nonsense, like these clips from 2002. I got about 90, 90 minutes worth of tape on my Sony memory stick. I always wondered what Napoleon sounded like. Would you like a croissant? No? Well, you can't have one anyway, because he's stuck. And I'm Napoleon. Fourteen years later, I was taking a stand-up class. Our instructor, Chris, explained that you can't show fear. The audience can sense it and will call you out. I had tried observational comedy, which was not my thing. Next up was one-liners. I felt a lot more comfortable writing one-liners. They're basically just tweets. I realized it was dumb to not use jokes I'd already written, so I went to an export of my old tweets. I scrolled through the spreadsheet and highlighted ones that I thought were funny. I'm supposed to be doing one-liners today, which I'm kind of excited about because I can do one-liners pretty well, I think. It's just hard to, to deliver them, you know, and do three minutes of one-liners. It's going to be pretty hard. Because like last week, I came up with the one-liner, does a bathroom attendant have to wash his hands before returning to work? And everybody laughed at it. And like it was the first time where I got a, like a rush from people laughing at something that I said. Like I feel better having jokes prepared ahead of time as opposed to going in there kind of blind and not knowing what to do. And I've really only held the microphone up there a couple times now, so I'm still getting used to just that and dealing with like being the center of attention up there. When I got to class, I was still reciting the jokes in my head until the moment I stepped on stage. Um, so I think the most disgusting force in nature is man, nays, 
It's disgusting. <laughs> it's basically just lube for your food. They just want the food. They want the food to slide down your throat easier. Seriously, we'd be at Mars by now, but NASA has to work with McDonald's to put up a franchise there before we can go. They're having trouble getting the mayo up to Mars. <coughs> if they made augmented, uh, if, if they made glasses that augmented your lover's appearance, would you wear them? I would. I've always wanted to take a lamp out for dinner. <laughs> I'm disappointed they don't have more elevators that go left to right. I got way more places to go horizontally than I do vertically. <laughs> have you ever had somebody come up to you and say, Hey, you're Jed Stoneham. You're the best. Me neither. Speaking of ghosts, I, I don't think I'd make a very good ghost. I'm kind of shy and I don't really like to talk, so nobody would even know that they were being haunted. <laughs> I'd just disappear into the background. <laughs> Surprisingly, people who wear camouflage are the people that you notice the most in a crowd. <laughs> That's... <laughs> <laughs> You'd also think that cantaloupes and antelopes would have way more in common. Is a cantaloupe just an antelope that can't hatch? <laughs> What's your favorite time of the year? A lot of people, they say summer. But I prefer National Pet Dental Month in February. That one didn't work. <laughs> Did you hear about the uh, orangutan that escaped from the zoo? He escaped in a container full of orange chicken from Panda Express. Oh. That's why it tastes like the way it tastes. <laughs> <clears throat> a dolphin had a sore throat. It was cool to get laughs. Unlike design, writing, and podcasting, there was immediate feedback, both good and bad. But afterward, I second-guessed myself. I think it was my best performance yet. And I'm second guessing it because I didn't go to bed until three in the morning because I wanted to sabotage it, not purposefully, but I ended up trying to sabotage it by staying up till three in the morning watching BoJack Horseman on Netflix. And now I'm thinking maybe I was so relaxed and excited because I was so tired. And next time I'll be more awake and I'll be overthinking and I'll be more robotic and boring and dry. I just overthink everything. I can't stop it. Like, I can't just do something. I have to think of every single step along the way before I can do anything. It's fucking annoying. After college, I got my first real job. It was 2005. I'd always thought of my day job as a way to support my comedy career. During bathroom breaks, I'd sit on the toilet writing one-liners. When a cigarette dies, it's always cremated. Sometimes, when I wrap my birthday gifts, I like to put the wrapping paper on inside out. That way, even the design of the wrapping paper is a surprise. I put them up on a blog called Hurdy Elbow. I posted pretty regularly for five years. It never really went anywhere. In 2010, 
I started to consider, thinking, about trying stand-up more seriously. I was working the same day job and had reconnected with an old high school friend on Facebook, Jimmy Chung. I recently caught up with Jimmy to talk about that time in our lives. Jimmy's in his 30s now, but back then he was a 20-something doing magic and stand-up in Chicago. I was in a band in Boston. When that ended, you know, I moved back to Chicago and uh, I had been lying to my parents that whole time that I actually had a great job and I was working at my own company. <laughs> but I was in a band and I felt like a failure, you know, because I wasn't doing what I was, what they thought I should be doing, what most people thought I should be doing. But I was actually doing something my heart was telling me to do, uh, despite the fact that I was an introvert, despite the fact that I'm not talented in music whatsoever. It was pure grit that I had to do this. After the band, Jimmy had started doing stand-up and told me to give it a try. We met up at a Borders bookstore to discuss my bits, a Borders that is now an Outback Steakhouse. Jimmy was very encouraging, but instead of trying an open mic, I met up with my friend Anna to discuss the same stand-up ideas. We hadn't seen each other much since college, where we hosted a late-night radio show. Hi, everybody. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, we're a little late. We're a little late for our show. That's okay. Introduce yourself, co-host. Oh, uh, I'm Jed. I'm not going to use my last name because if I suck, I don't want mail. Yeah. Okay, um, do you hear anything in your headphones? Because I don't. No, well, a little that, bit. A little bit? Or maybe Crab. it's just the muffled I don't even sound. know if we're on the air. That's okay. Um, we're going to play some good stuff now. We were awesome. Anna inspired me to take writing classes at Second City back in the day. When I told her my ideas for stand-up, she was very encouraging. But I never actually told any of those jokes. I was too afraid. I thought it might help to watch Jimmy do stand-up, so I caught a set at a bar in Chicago. It looked terrifying. Jimmy could sense my apprehension. He said my girlfriend would probably get up there before I did, and she didn't even want to do stand-up. The second time I saw Jimmy perform, he was on stage in a nightclub, standing next to a pole meant for dancing. I remember he got a complimentary slice of frozen pizza before his set. I was a little jealous. But how did Jimmy feel on stage? Had I not had the magic background, I think I'd be terrified of uh, going up there with a microphone. Because the problem is you go up there without magic. Magic was my was my cane, but there's something you gotta understand with stand-up comedy, you're up there completely naked. You know, you're up there with a microphone in your hand and the stuff in your head, and you have to convince people that they should be entertained by you. And that's really hard, you know? And uh, I give so much respect to stand-up comedians. It is... The hardest thing you can do. I've done a lot of things. I've played in bands. I've played on stages. I've played in festivals. I've performed magic for all types of groups. There's still nothing scarier than doing stand-up comedy. Jimmy had done stand-up for years, and he still thinks it's terrifying. Usually when you try something once, you become less afraid of it. I'm glad I didn't think about this then. But after doing a few sets and totally bombing, you start to think about it. I'm like, well, I respected stand-up comedy before, but 
comedians go up there night after night willing to put themselves out there and uh, that is such a huge risk you know you're putting your your pride on the line you know I mean how many people think they can do that yeah, that's what got me at the end I couldn't do that after a while I mean, how about you yeah, no, it, you have to go up there knowing that you're going to fail 99% of the time just to find one joke that works. And then yeah. you're going to do it all over again to find one more joke. And so you're failing more than you're actually succeeding. <laughs> right. And professionals say that. A fantastic comedian say that. What chance do I have in doing that? You know? And, uh, oh, it's crazy. Like, this. You know, and I get that it's a great metaphor for life. You have to try more, and you guys take a lot of shots, and I get all that. But to actually do it, man, that's a whole other thing. I, I just thinking about it gets me nervous. Eventually, Jimmy realized you gotta have the drive, man. You gotta be willing to put yourself through that. And I did at one point, and it, it wore on me, man. The anxiety got to me. Um, that's why I eventually kind of slowed down because I couldn't handle it. And uh, the feeling of being scared, the anxiety started creeping in after many shows. It didn't happen right away. I didn't know any better. And that's almost better if you don't know anything um, because after a while, the doubts come in. And if you didn't have things to be scared of before, you do now because that stuff just eats away your head and you get super nervous and it shows, you know. And then it becomes less about them enjoying themselves and more about how nervous you are. Some other examples of anxiety started to come up where I was watching more acts and I started to see how gifted some people were and some people who were not as gifted but didn't seem to care, but they were just enjoying themselves. And that in turn made it a good set. And I admired that and I kind of saw faults in my own set. And instead of working on it, I just let it get me down. I remember this one time. I opened up for Steve Byrne, and I was excited that he let me do it because um, he was a huge comedian, and he still is. But I remember being backstage. I was so nervous. I almost threw it back there because um, I knew in my head maybe I didn't belong there and I didn't deserve it. So I was really beating myself up. I, the show went fine, and no one knew that I was really upset by all this and super anxious. But, I mean, going on stage in front of people with jokes not tried out to its fullest um, can be a debilitating thing. Jimmy ended up shifting away from comedy into acting. When my day job came to an end, I had shoulder surgery and found myself unemployed. Instead of trying stand-up, I got a new day job. But I couldn't stop thinking about it. You know, you and I are, we're, we're both really quiet people and there's something about People like us, for some reason, why do we put ourselves through this? Why do we do this? And I think it's to prove to ourselves that we can. You know, it'd be easier not to do stand-up. It'd be easier not to express yourself. But here we are talking about tackling our fears and all the steps you personally took to take all these classes despite the outcome. I don't know. I think we should pat ourselves on the back for that, right? kept working on bits on the side. It was 2011. During lunch breaks at my new job, I'd walk down a frontage road next to the tollway 
and rehearse jokes. I paced in my bedroom, holding a screwdriver like a microphone. I try bits in the car on the way home from work. People always tell me that you need to eat things or you'll die. And I believe them because I've been eating things all my life and I'm not dead yet. Unless you count being dead on the inside. I looked for more support. When I was in the comedy writing program at Second City, I met Josh Hansen. He was also doing stand-up. We talked about open mics and he encouraged me to try one with him but I still couldn't do it. I watched Josh perform at the Underground Lounge. He was great, but I couldn't even work up the courage to say hello afterwards. I wanted to, but I couldn't. My girlfriend was like, just say hello. Instead, I disappeared into the bathroom. When I came out, I said, we should leave. I felt like I didn't know him that well. What would I say? He won't even remember me. We left. The next day, I sent Josh a message on Facebook, and he asked, Did you go last night? Thank you. How come I never see you after these things? I sent him another message. I'm pretty much the most stilted, socially awkward dude ever. Improv helped me out so much socially, I can't even begin to describe how much. It was pretty obvious I wasn't going to get over my fear of getting up on stage. I started putting in more hours at the day job and let the idea of comedy and stand-up fade away. But I couldn't let it go. I still needed that outlet. I found a new job and started writing again. That writing led to a podcast, which led to improv classes, and finally, in 2016, at the age of 34, I signed up to take a class on stand-up. Our stand-up teacher, Chris, explained how crowds usually love one-liners. But one-liners don't have a lot of staying power, so a lot of comics like to mix them in with longer stories. I guess one-liners don't have a lot of substance. They're not very memorable. Like me. I stumbled upon a persona of self-loathing. The idea is to make fun of yourself before the audience has a chance to. It's a way to win them over. The crowd sympathizes with you a little bit, and then you can move in to more controversial topics. Our next assignment was to try different personas. A lot of comedians exaggerate or heighten their personality on stage. Like how Dan Whitney was a comic for years before he started performing as Larry the Cable Guy. Here's my first attempt at personas. All right, so, are you forgetful? A simple trick is to take your keys and put them on your head before you go to sleep. And you'll find them when you wake up, every time. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry if I look a little sleepy. I, I forgot to put my makeup on today. Um, um, so, I have the charisma somewhere between a tortoise and a dead tortoise. <laughs> I know I'm not a Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart. 
<laughs> As the credits roll, Humphrey Bogart steps back onto the screen and says, If you like the film, give us a review on iTunes and subscribe to our Patreon page and join our Kickstarter for Casablanca 2. <laughs> um, it's always darkest before the dawn or in a grave six feet under. <laughs> that joke is a little, a little dark. Uh, Home Depot could sell way more ladders if they sold them in aisle seven at the bottom of a trap door. <laughs> the, inventor of, the inventor of the guillotine found success in both the idea and the execution. <laughs> the internet has kind of ruined it for everybody because now everybody is a know-it-all and they pull out their phone and they bombard you with facts such as uh, no matter how hard you try uh, you'll never be able to run without jogging first <laughs> the, the origin of lemons is unknown I came from my parents <laughs> Gargoyles were created to divert water off of buildings. Uh, did you know that? Me neither. <laughs> tortilla chips are made out of tortillas that are chopped up. I had no idea. Did you know Colonel Sanders used to work at KFC? <laughs> You'll know you found you, your soulmate when you hug them and your nipples line up. What? <laughs> I don't know where people get these facts from. But people tell me that I've got a good memory. It was uneven but I think it went okay. I tried to heighten by making my character more nervous, but pretending to be nervous made me feel more nervous on stage. Overall, though, performing was getting easier. It helped that I had a friend in class with me, Andrew. I met Andrew in improv classes, and I asked if he wanted to take stand-up with me. I think in retrospect... I was too chicken to even take the class alone. I'm very glad he decided to join. My name is Andrew Lemna. I've been in Chicago for about two years now. Uh, I am an improviser here in Chicago. Andrew's in his early 20s. After college, he was uncertain about what he wanted to do. And he had a friend who was pursuing comedy and he was so happy all the time. And he loved what he was doing. and. I had gotten a taste of comedy in Indianapolis. I had been starting to improvise, tried staying up a tiny bit there. So when I moved here, it was a very obvious choice to get invested. And I took level A improv here, and I thought, this is great. And then they have a writing program in Second City. So I kept trying more and more stuff. And the more connections I made with people, the more I practiced and the better I got, it felt very momentous. So at the time when you asked me to do the stand-up class, I was kind of in that yes and mentality of, yeah, I just want to try everything. Why not? It took me roughly 20 years to work up the nerve to try stand-up. He still had some concerns. For me, it was about being self-conscious. I thought that I understood humor pretty well, but the actual structure of writing a joke that's like a setup punchline or a misdirection or something that's not just a funny story, but like in itself is funny. I think it's very scary to go up and with that expectation of, I'm going to be funny right now. 
watch me versus an improv you kind of have like that group up there with you and you have that safety net of a lot of people and you just say we're gonna play and you know something funny might happen but in stand-up it's you have expectations when you walk on stage and that's really intimidating according to our instructor chris most comedians write down a premise and then improvise jokes on stage i had no idea me and andrew both thought it was all supposed to be ready to go and then you go up there and just say it. And I think it's only partially writing. It's partially who you are and your voice. And then it's just execution too. It's rewriting it on stage through various tries. And it's it's a cool process because it's an imperfect process. But that's what's so cool about comedy as a whole is no one's expecting you to be amazing when you're starting. It's all about just trying, failing forward and trying again. I think you'll always remember getting your first laugh on stage. I kind of had my first moment like that when I first tried improv because we were doing short form games in Indianapolis. And I remember I was new and I had a really, really good backline joke and it got like a big applause break. And that was such a cool feeling to make a ton of people laugh and clap. And I, I truly remember that was the moment where I was like, oh, this feels very cool. I like that. Getting laughs in class was getting easier. But then Chris encouraged us to try an open mic. I had been putting off open mics for six years. Lucky for us, our classmate Elliot worked at Goldie's Pub in Chicago. And they had open mics every Sunday and Wednesday. It's Sunday, July 31st, and I'm supposed to be on my way to my first open mic. But 20 minutes ago, my stomach went crazy, and I freaked out a little bit, and I decided that I just, I can't, I just can't do it. It's going to take me 40 minutes to get there. It starts at 8.30. It's 8 o'clock right now. There's no way I can get there and get parking and figure out how to do it and deal with it, and I just don't, uh, I finalized my set today. And I just started memorizing it an hour and a half ago before the performance. And I just can't do it. I just can't. I can't do it. I don't know why. I, uh, I can't do it because I'm freaking out because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know the space. I don't know the people. I don't know how to deal with it. I'm just freaking out. Like, just was in the bathroom for 20 minutes and trying to figure out what to do and I just freaked out. I guess it's stage fright because I just don't want to go up in front of all of these people and forget something or they don't laugh or they laugh and I get thrown off so then I can't remember the rest of it. And I'm just freaking out. So I just texted everybody and said I just I don't can't do it. Because I just can't do it. I can't work up the nerve to do it. Thanks for listening to Season 3, Episode 1. There may not be another one. Man Afraid of Everything is me, Jed Starnavin. You can find more episodes at getafraid.com. That incredible music was provided by composer Matt McGinley. 
Theme music by FF Low Beats. Thanks to Marla Martinez and Katie for helping with the edit. Thanks to our instructor Chris and Second City. Thanks to Jimmy Chung, Andrew Lemna, and Mr. Coots for sharing their stories. Thanks to Josh, Anna, and everyone I met along the way. If you like the show, subscribe and tell a friend.